From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bobby Bascom. Millions of early deaths will be avoided if countries adopt the strict new air quality standards of the World Health Organization. So many people are living in polluted air uh, that was, you know, in excess of what the World Health Organization said was safe previously. And so ratcheting the level down, uh, you know, we, we could save a lot of lives here. Also, it's harvest time and you don't need a garden to store up on the bounty. I live on the 20th floor of a high-rise, but sometimes it's actually easier to be a canner who doesn't garden because it means that I have all my time for food preservation and can really work with my local farmers and growers and get the best of what they grew, support them in their work, and I feel like everybody wins. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The World Health Organization is calling for sharp reductions in air pollutants that kill 7 million or more worldwide every year, including some 300,000 people in the U.S. alone. On September 22nd, WHO adopted new and stricter guidelines for six different poisons that commonly pollute the air. These include carbon monoxide, sulfur and nitrogen oxides, low-level ozone, commonly found in smog, and medium and fine particulates. And it is those fine particulates, known as PM2.5, that lead to the bulk of early deaths, as these tiny but deadly toxins get sucked in through the lungs straight to the bloodstream, where they circulate just like oxygen molecules. And in the United States, the allowable amount of yearly exposure to fine particulates is more than twice what WHO now recommends for all nations. We turn now to pediatrician Aaron Bernstein, who's the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard University. Dr. Bernstein, welcome back to Living on Earth. Great to be with you, Steve. What are these new standards, and how do they match up to the former standards from the World Health Organization? So these new standards deal with a lot of the baddies in the air pollution world, the things we know that can be air pollutants that are really bad for our health. And they have been updated in a good long while, so one might argue that they're due for some revisions. And they're dramatic in many cases. So particulate matter air pollution, which is the pollutant that we see causing the most harm around the world, it gets defined by its size. So how big the particle in the air is determines essentially how bad it's going to be for our health. And the smaller particles are about two and a half microns in diameter. That's about 1 20th the width of a human hair. And they've halved the safe level for the yearly exposure. They look at the levels in the air over the course of a year, and they also have a standard for a single day. So it used to be that the WHO said if you had 10 micrograms per meter cubed of particulate matter, two and a half micrograms in diameter, you were okay. And now they're saying five. That's a pretty drastic reduction. So in terms of PM2.5, talk to me about the implications of that and just how many lives would be saved if that standard were, in fact, adopted universally. Yeah, so we know that particulate matter pollution is responsible for millions of deaths around the world every year. And, you know, estimates vary, but a recent publication looked at just the particulate matter from fossil fuels, which, of course, is probably one of the bigger sources, if not the biggest source, depending on where you live. And it's estimated about 8 million people are dying from burning fossil fuels that produce particulate air pollution every year. That's one in five deaths. So 
we know that particulate pollution, particularly PM 2.5, is a big deal for death and, of course, a host of other health problems, asthma, chronic lung diseases, heart disease, stroke, even lung cancer, and I could go on. Now, some of the press material from the World Health Organization suggested that perhaps 80% of the deaths now from fine particulates would go away if, in fact, these standards are adopted universally. How does that strike you, Dr. Bernstein? Well, I think it's not implausible. I mean, we have for a long time underestimated how many people's lives were being lost from air pollution. And we know that so many people were living in polluted air that was you know, in excess of what the World Health Organization said was safe previously. And so ratcheting the level down, you know, we could save a lot of lives here. And the good news, of course, is that most of that air pollution in many parts of the world is coming from burning fossil fuels. And that means we have an opportunity to not only prevent those deaths today, but also help address climate change. So talk to me about PM 2.5 and how that is related to, say, COVID mortality. Yeah, so this is a really important connection, Steve, and it actually goes beyond COVID, but there's now very clear evidence that people who've had to breathe more of this particulate matter air pollution, you know, over many years are more likely to die from a COVID infection. The United States, colleagues of mine at the Harvard Chan School, found that people who had breathed just one microgram per meter cubed more for many years, and remember, the standard from the WHO was set down from 10 to 5 in the United States, many communities will, you know, be in the 5 to 10 range. So one microgram is not a huge difference. But a one microgram per meter cubed increase in your many-year exposure to air pollution could increase your chance of dying from COVID by 6 or 8% in the United States. And the key part here to me is it's not just COVID. That same particulate matter air pollution is going to increase your chance of dying from the seasonal flu or from pneumonias, or other respiratory infections. And this has been known for a long time. And so it wasn't surprising to many of us to see that it was in true, in fact, with COVID, which for many people is a problem for the lungs. So air pollution, and particularly particulate matter air pollution, is a critical part of our health outside of its direct effects on your chances of dying. You know, it can affect, you know, how sick you get from a respiratory infection. It can affect our mental health. It can affect brain diseases. And, and so, you, you know, you really get a lot of health benefits when you reduce exposures. So to what extent do the current air quality standards in the U.S. match up with the new standards that the World Health Organization says we should adopt? It's a good question. It's kind of a mix and a match. In some cases, the WHO standards are a little more stringent, and in some instances, they're a little less stringent. You know, for the particulate matter annual average, the WHO set a, a standard of five, and in the United States we have an annual standard of 12. For ozone, we have a standard in the United States of 70 parts per billion. In the WHO standard, they have 60 parts per billion. So, you know, for many of these pollutants, and again, for particulate matter, the evidence suggests that there's no safe level of exposure. And so it really becomes a, a question of trade-offs, which is how much can we reduce for how much money is it going to cost? And, you know, what's interesting is that particularly... In countries that have cleaned up a lot of air pollution, like the United States, even when you've done that, we still see when you look at the health effects and include the health effects and the cost of the harms and the air pollution in your cost-benefit, turns out that you know reductions below current levels are cost-effective, that we actually would save money. The challenge is that when policymakers make rules, they're very quick to look at the cost of cleaning up the air 
the benefits often are, are curtailed for a variety of reasons. And so we don't necessarily lower the pollutant levels to where the science would, would say, now, we're never going to obviously get to zero in terms of particulate matter, because even if we got off fossil fuels, there'd still be things burning. There'd be secondary particles from other sources, even natural sources. But there's no question that there are many places, even in the United States, where particulate matter air pollution is is a problem. And I should note that in the United States, you know, everyone has had better air quality over the last 40 years. The benefits have not been shared equally. So it turns out that white Americans have gotten improvements in their air quality more than black Americans and Latinx Americans. And there's one part of the country, and it's the only part, that has seen a trend in the wrong direction. Uh And that's uh, in the Northwest, where wildfire smoke has actually been so prevalent that the uh, exposure particles has actually gone up. But wait, Dr. Bernstein, you're saying that the WHO level of 5 for fine particulates compares to 12 uh, as the official U.S. limit. Sounds like the U.S. needs to think again about uh, particulate levels. Yeah, well, the science would certainly suggest that there are harms happening at levels below the current air quality standard. And, you know, the Clean Air Act in the United States directs EPA to review the science and to set standards that are protective of health, including for vulnerable populations. And so we can expect that EPA is likely to lower the exposure standard for particulate matter. There was an effort already for many years now to lower the ozone standard as well. And there's a real political melee that happens (laughs) because, you know, polluters don't want to stop polluting so much, even if the pollution is causing pretty big harms. And again, there's a huge equity issue here. You know, it, it is in an era where we're also focused on addressing, you know, systematic discrimination. It's hard to look at the data that, that makes so clear that if you're a Black American or a Latinx American, not only are you exposed to way more of this pollution because of where you live and where those places are in relation to power plants and roads, you're the least responsible for producing it. And so it's this sort of double inequity And so on the flip side of that, the more we can do to reduce pollution emissions, the more we'll see reversal of of historical injustices. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that the more we we shine light on these inequities, the toll that pollution from burning fossil fuels is having, the more political will we'll see to get it even cleaner than it is. Aaron Bernstein is the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. Ari, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's time now to take a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. How are you doing? What you got for us today? Well, hi, Steve. There's a story coming out in advance of the climate summit happening in little over a month in Scotland starting October 31st, where China has told the world that it's going to quit financing coal-fired power plants in other countries. Well, that's pretty good news. I mean, China has been exporting a lot of coal-fired power plants, but on the other hand, they have like over 900 themselves. Doesn't sound like they're going to shut those down or stop building those at home. Now, China has four times as many coal-burning power plants as the next leading nation, which is, of course, the United States, 
We're talking about the financing of a dozen coal plants in South Africa, other nations in Southeast Asia, Pakistan, South America. I don't think anyone is regarding it as a huge turnaround by China, still the world's largest emitter, with the U.S. and India not too far behind. It's nice, though, to see China put something down on the table, because before Paris, the U.S. and China got together and really hammered out a lot of the details of, of a deal. And, but right now, the U.S. and China don't seem to be getting on and seem to be in any kind of mood to develop an agreed-upon climate plan. So this could be good news. That's right. But it's past time for us to quit playing two steps forward and one step back on climate. Indeed. Hey, uh, what else do you have for us today? Here's a term that'll give you the creeps a little bit, and it's happening along the U.S. East Coast, among other places, the phenomenon of ghost forests. These are coastal wetlands forests, trees like cedar trees that are dying off as saltwater intrusion reaches into freshwater wetlands and kills the trees, turning them from verdant green to stark white. And I gather some of these have been seen in your old home state, New Jersey. That's right. Jersey, with all the wetlands and the pine barrens, is an unfortunate leader in this environmental setback. But it's happening up and down the coast. And saltwater intrusion isn't just a factor in killing off coastal forests. It's a factor in potentially killing off coastal water supplies. Here in the southeast, along the Georgia seacoast in South Carolina, around Jacksonville, Florida. A lot of the drinking water sources are freshwater aquifers along the coast. As salt water literally gets sucked in and pushed inward by sea level rise, it's going to contaminate those aquifers, putting them out of reach just as populations along the coast continue to grow. That is not good news, Peter. Well, let's look back in history now for a moment. What do you see? On September 29th, 1957, uh, a tank with liquid nuclear waste exploded at a plant called Mayak in the Central Soviet Union. Hundreds of square miles downwind were um, contaminated by radiation because of the secrecy in the Soviet Union. We don't know how many people were affected or killed, but it's regarded as the third worst nuclear accident in history in terms of an area and population contaminated behind only Chernobyl and the Fukushima accident in Japan. And uh, I remember hearing something about Chelyabinsk. This is the same place? Yes? No? It's the same place. So good were the Soviets at keeping secrets about their nuclear work that Chelyabinsk was actually a huge teeming nuclear city that no one knew about. It was deeply contaminated. And again, we still don't know quite how much, how fully, or whether it's still contaminated. But what became known as the Chelyabinsk accident was one of the worst ones we've ever had. Well, let's hope that those kind of accidents stay in the history books, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Uh, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at the Living on Earth website. That's loe.org. Coming up, fall gardening tips from our gardening guru. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Healthy ecosystems always seek balance, and in general, any creature that doesn't comply won't last long. Living on Earth's Explorer and Residence, Mark Seth Lender has this example of a tacit agreement for survival between species in the highlands of Kenya. At a grove of camaphora trees, giraffe are grazing. They will eat acacia also, but camaphora have no thorns. They reach their necks into the rooftop of the grove. The day is cool and light, lean and languid. Giraffe move about. Their movements are softness, the patination of their skin, concentric watery shapes like ripples in daubed paint, white to light ochre to a center of raw umber, as tempting to the eye as puddles to a child. All eyes are drawn to them. They are vibrant and alive and as apparent as a forest. Even behind a specter of branches, tangled and dark, they cannot pretend to hide. But at a distance, at the edge of the woods, passing through sun and shade, it is impossible to tell if the herd is in among the trees or in front, how far is also confusing, and with their long legs and long stride, how fast exactly the things a predator watching needs to know. And not knowing, more often than not, will leave them alone. A giraffe extends her blackberry ice cream tongue as dexterous as index and thumb it wraps around a stem high in the crown. The leaves rustle. She draws them into her wrinkled mouth, her face furred and furrowed. She is not young, and the leaves are sweet to her. And yet she will not stay. She will not eat only of this one tree, nor continue in this single place. None of them will. Not long enough to nourish, much less to staunch their hunger. Because tree and giraffe hold an agreement do not harm me. The tree, bitten to the quick, will make itself bitter as bile and send a warning through the air, an invisible semaphore too thin to be detected except by other trees downwind who will sense and heed the warning. And then they too will make themselves impossible to eat. So giraffe, refrain. The leaves of the grove are plump and green and good, which makes for a movable feast. And for the tree, it means not being brought to grief, but only a pruning. Perhaps this is what the tree needs, for the sake of the thick new growth that will come. Or if not needs, at least endures at no great price. And so each kind... Giraffe and tree can and will 
continue. That's Living on Earth's Explorer in Residence, Mark Seth Lender. The next meeting of the Living on Earth Book Club is coming up on October 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll be talking with Kennery Webb about her book, Guardian of the Trees, a memoir about her time as a medical doctor in Borneo. Her life's work there is to save the rainforest by healing the people. It's sure to be a great chat. You can register for this free event at LOE.org events. That's LOE.org events. And if you like, email a question in advance for Dr. Webb to LOEbookclub at LOE.org. That's LOEbookclub at LOE.org. See you there. So, Bobby, September 20th was the harvest moon. It was, yeah. And I managed to get a few tomatoes out of my little garden bed, especially the sun sugar cherry tomatoes that Michael Weishaunt suggested in the spring. But I know you actually have a pretty big garden at your place. uh, So how did it go this year? Well, you know, we had a bumper crop of kale this year, as every year. Um, Everyone who came to my house actually had to go home with an armload of kale. But the broccoli was kind of a bust, and so was the cabbage, really. Uh, Well, better luck next year. Yes. But, you know, Steve, gardening season never really ends. This is a fine time around here to plant a last crop of cold-hardy plants, like lettuce. Um, You can get garlic in the ground pretty soon, and a lot of perennial flower bulbs are actually planted in the fall. And so for some more fall gardening tips, let's bring back Michael Weisson. He's our gardening guru and former host of the Victory Garden on PBS. Michael, welcome back to Living on Earth. It is a delight to be back as always. Oh, it's always so fun to have you. So how did your garden grow this summer? Oh, well, um, I would honestly say this has been the most miserable gardening year I've had in the last 20. Um, wow. Our weather's been terrible here in New England. Brutally hot summers. And very rainy. We had feet, literally, of rain. So any problem that you could imagine that would come out with lots of rain and humidity did. Slugs all over the place. Every type of fungal, mildew, downy mildew kind of problem. Insects galore. But, you know, you take your successes where you get them, right? I grew celeriac this year, um, which failed last year. And this year, I have huge, you know softball size bulbs of celeriac to soar for the winter, which um, if you don't know what that is, it's a it's a wonderful vegetable. It's a bulbous vegetable relative to the carrot family, parsley family, that forms this uh, large knotty-like ball that has the flavor of celery. So you don't have to buy celery then in the winter. You can store this because it stores like a potato. And they're just delicious in soups and stews and other things where you would normally put celery and it holds up a little better because it has a involved like, you know, squash-like consistency. Yeah, I've had them um, from CSA chairs in the past. I've never tried growing them, though, but I know they're nice to just chop up and roast in the in the oven like a root vegetable. Exactly. And, you know, they're really interesting plants. You can eat the greens, which look like celery and taste like celery, a very strong celery, but they're a very handsome plant. I was very excited. So that did well. I'll tell you, you know, and share with our listeners, even the flower border did not do well this year. I mean, the long perennial border did. But the cut flower garden, with all the, the rain and stuff, I mean, the cosmos, it just, it's all went down. <laughs> I'm ready to be done. Yeah. <laughs> You're ready <laughs> you to <know>. be done. <laughs> yeah, Bobby, I'm ready to be done. Uh, you oh. know, it's like, I, I'm moving on to 2020. Where are we? 2022 now? Coming up? Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, man. You know, I always feel like this is a great time to reflect back on the summer and, and think about those things that didn't work out so well and things that, that worked out better. And, you know, I should probably write notes to my future, you know, spring planting self about things like that. You know, things like don't plant the basil near where the ground cherries always come up and shade the basil and then swear that you'll be better about weeding them out because you won't. Do you have any of those kind of lessons learned this year? Well, I think you've stated the lesson learned, which mm-hmm. is to keep a diary. And if nothing else, just note down things that, that worked and that didn't. I mean, for instance, I mentally noted to myself last year that I put the celeriac in a not sunny enough space. And so I shifted it this year and it did really well. I really think this is the time of year for review and really thinking about, you know, while you can still see it, you know, while it's still there, what worked and what didn't, what needs to be moved around and keep those notes in a viable format, whatever worked for you for next year. Well, I know you said you're ready to give up on uh, gardening for the year, but are there any plants that maybe listeners should think about focusing on this time of year? I mean, here in New England, we still have six weeks or so before frost and in other parts of the country, um, maybe this is a fine time to plant. So with that in mind, there's still time for lettuces and other crops here. Pretty much now it's a harvesting question in New England. But if you're in the South or if you're in the West, this is the beginning of the gardening season, at least the cool weather gardening season. So all the cool weather crops that we would be planting normally in the spring, they start now because this is their more temperate time as opposed to being baked, which has been the case. So, you know, it's been a tough year. And I think that's something that we need to to think about the adaptability of, you know, our plans and how rigid we are in changing things around and, and adapting more. For instance, the growing seasons are, are shifting. There's no doubt about that. And the climate zones are shifting north, so it's getting warmer. We here had historically been in 5B, but I was just reading the American Horticultural Society thinks we're now in 6B. You know, we're wow. up a zone almost in since 1970. Mm-hmm. And another 20 years would put us into 7. That's a huge shift. There's a whole borderline between five and six and seven of plants you can grow and not grow. And as you shift further south, you knock out the cold weather crops, things that do very well in only cool temperatures. So, you know, I think there has to be a realization that we need to change what we're doing. (laughs) It's mother nature. (laughs) You got to move with her because we move against her. She's going to whack you down like a mole. <laughs> yeah, there's there's certainly no no use in fighting Mother Nature. You just have to roll with it, uh, as you said. I guess here in New England, though, I mean, a longer growing season kind of sounds attractive. I, I mean, if you have to find a silver lining to all of the the horrible things associated with climate change, at least we get another month or so out of uh, our growing season. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, you know, things like we were talking around, like the leeks and the celeriac and other really long season crops that we wouldn't have time for sometimes, like, and big, huge pumpkins and things. If the start of the season is earlier, then you can plant this stuff much earlier and and move all the way through. Everything has a silver lining to it. So it's not doom and doom, right? But there are changes that we need to make as, you know, gardening folks to adapt to the new reality. Well, you mentioned earlier the many, many challenges that you've had, and I think we've all had this year with gardening. And one of them that I really struggle with is pests. I actually only harvested one zucchini this year. Usually I'm, you know, leaving them on neighbors' porches, you know, neck deep in in zucchini bread by now, but the squash vine borers were just horrible. Is there anything gardeners can do now in the fall to maybe mitigate uh, next year's pests? Well, you beat me by one because I had no zucchini. Oh, really? Oh, gosh, that makes me feel slightly better. I'm sorry for you. The plants disappeared. Yeah, the plants disappeared. I mean, how can you lose zucchini? 
That was a factor of the extra warmth. So the moss, the borer moss that, that lay the eggs were around a lot longer than they normally were. So you know that if you use row cover over the squash, when the moths are active, then they don't have time to lay their eggs. And so you then uncover them and generally you're good to go. But this year, I thought it was late enough. I planted them out and they were all destroyed. Wow. So, you know, there's things that you do now, not in terms so much of insect pests, but in terms of disease, for instance, tomatoes with late blight, those vines should be removed and not composted. They should be disposed of or burned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, soil, uh, you know, again, this is really the time to think about soil. And we do it now uh, south of here. We'll, we'll be doing it in a month or two's time before Christmas in general. You know, there are many things you can do in the fall in terms of soil improvement, whether it's cover crops or other type of enhancements. We've done cover crops. Winter rye is one of the most common. Although I was reading about these giant radishes. Have you have these radishes as a cover crop that they grow very quickly and have very deep, long roots, and then they die and rot and essentially form these cavities in the soil so that in the spring, they've sort of aerated your soil without tilling? Mm. (laughs) I I like the idea. A friend of mine told me about that. I have to go look into that because that is sort of a, that's a, a revolutionary kind of concept to me. I use leaves for soil improvement because you have a billion of them. And what are you going to do with them? You have to get them to go somewhere. So what I do is I collect them in tarps and then layer them onto the beds and let them sit for the winter. And if they're wet, they, they form a mat and they don't blow around. And uh, in the spring, then very early on, I get out there and till them in and break them up. Now, they won't be fully composted, but once they're chopped, within about three or four weeks, they decay very quickly. So then I rototill them in again. And that improves what's called the tilth of the soil, which is the ability to absorb moisture and air, in particular oxygen, into the roots. So it gives you that fine, crumbly soil. It's minimally also nutritional. You know, the other way to get rid of the leaves is with chickens. Did I ever tell you this story? I don't think so. So you can actually, the chickens, the chickens scratch in order to forage. And if you put all the leaves in the chicken coop area, they will scratch them into the ground. And by spring, they will be totally gone. And I'm talking huge, like two foot tall piles of leaves. The chickens get into the, <laughs> into the piles and they're like, scratch, 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 scratch. And there's like leaves flying up all over. And, you know, it's just the craziest you know, thing to see. And essentially they do what the rototiller does in the spring, right? It just eliminates them entirely. So if I have too many leaves, I don't know what to do with, rather than hauling them to the town composting area, I just give them to the chickens, so... Yeah, you and I um, both have chickens, and I love this idea of a chicken tractor. They sometimes call it, you know, the idea being just let the chickens into the garden when you're done growing everything, because otherwise they'll, you know, peck holes in every tomato you have. But you let them into the garden, they eat the grubs and snails and all these little things that are going to cause you problems, scratch up the soil, maybe leave some fertilizer behind. Do you ever do that sort of thing? I am too lazy to roll a giant chicken caravan around my my property. Um, I use ducks for that um, purpose because, you know, again, as we were talking about, the chickens love to scratch, but the ducks, because they trill the soil as opposed to scratch it, they trill it with their beaks. So they search for worms and other things underneath that way. They do very well eating grubs. They love slugs and earthworms, which I'm not so excited about the meeting, but any type of bug moving ticks, they're also a big consumer of ticks. And so I let I have ducks and geese for that purpose. They keep the algae on the pond down in the summer 
And then in the fall, in the spring, I let them wander around the beds, and especially in the orchards. They eat all the falls, too, which is great. Do you do anything with the waste from your, your chickens and your ducks um, in terms of, you know, composting their manure for fertilizer or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When it's cleaned out, it go, all goes in the compost pile and it's mixed in with the garden waste and all this stuff. And it produces an incredible compost. And I have three huge compost bins that are just fantastic for producing large quantities of compost, which I then use mostly as potting soil. Yeah, exactly. And I have to say, you know, talking with you, a master gardener who knows everything there is to know about gardening makes me feel a lot better about my own gardening failures this summer. You know, my one sad zucchini and shriveled up cabbage. (laughs) (laughs) They don't seem so bad. (laughs) Michael Weissan is a master gardener. He's been host of the Victory Garden on PBS and a regular garden help here on Living on Earth. Michael, thanks again for taking this time with me today. It's always so much fun to chat with you. Absolutely. Absolutely, Bobby. Thank you so much. Coming up, tomatoes and pumpkins and kale. Oh, my. From home gardens to farmer's markets, we'll have some tips for preserving the bounty of this harvest season. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Fall harvest season is upon us, and for the birds, that means it's time to migrate. Bird Notes' Mary McCann has more. In September, Arctic terns fly south over the ocean, from Alaska all the way to Antarctica. Also in September, the last rufous hummingbirds depart their breeding range in the west, following floral highways of mountain wildflowers south to Mexico. Ruby-crowned kinglets are leaving the northern evergreen forests where they nest, on their way to milder climates. Each of these birds is migrating, but on a very different course. All have the same adaptive goal, making the most of food and breeding opportunities that change with the seasons. Arctic terns follow one of the longest annual migrations, traveling as much as 44,000 miles each year. Arctic tundra provides their ideal nesting site in summer. The Antarctic, the ideal feeding grounds in our winter. Rufus hummingbirds are medium-range migrants, traversing about 5,000 miles a year between temperate and tropical nectar sources. Some ruby-crowned kinglets are altitudinal migrants, especially in the West. They may remain close to the same latitude all year, but spend the cold months in the relative warmth of the lowlands, dining on insects and their eggs. In summer, you'll need to ascend thousands of feet into the western mountain ranges to hear the kinglet's exuberant song. I'm Mary McCann. For photos, migrate on over to the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. So, Bobby, before the break, you talk with Michael Weisson about your gardening setbacks and successes. And now it's the end of the season, so what are you planning to do with all your excess produce? Well, I've been freezing a lot of tomatoes this year, and we actually made apple cider last week with most of our apples. You know, the harvest season right now is really a sweet spot when many gardeners and farmers markets still have summer produce like tomatoes and cucumbers, but fall pumpkins and apples are also abundant. Right. For my grandmother, like so many of her generation, this was the time to can, pickle, and dry food to get through the long, cold days of winter ahead. 
Yeah, it sure was. But today, we really waste a lot of food in this country. Between 30 and 40 percent of all food produced in the U.S. is wasted. And that adds up to a huge contribution to greenhouse gas emissions, roughly the equivalent of 32 million cars on the road. Oh, yeah. And yet people still go hungry, huh? Right. Yeah. Well, so to get some tips on how to avoid some waste and preserve the food of the harvest season, I'm going to bring in Marissa McClellan now. She's a food writer, blogger, and author of the book Food in Jars. Marissa McClellan, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So some of our listeners may be gardeners, but let's say you don't have a garden of your own. What are the best places to get local food this time of year for preserving? Well, Some of the very best places to go are your local farmer's markets or um, farm stands. I love to go to the farmer's market that happens in my neighborhood once a week. And I've been going there for almost 20 years now. And so I have made lots of friends with my farmers and they like to hook me up with seconds and good deals of produce. So it works out well. Oh, do you have to go and, you know, glean the apples on the ground at the end of the apple season, that sort of thing? I do that sometimes, um, but I have gotten to know so many people that I can often just email or text and say, hey, I'm open, you know, whatever you've got in terms of seconds, if you've got um, 15 or 20 pounds of something you're looking to move, I'm your girl. And they will uh, bring me uh, boxes at the farmer's market and we'll do a little uh, behind the table deal. And I'll go home with uh, 20 pounds of apples or peaches or pears or whatever, you know, they have that needs to be used. I believe you live in a high rise in a city. You're not on a farm in the middle of nowhere and you're still pulling this off. It's true. I live on the 20th floor of a high rise in downtown Philadelphia. But, you know, sometimes it's actually easier to be a canner who doesn't garden because it means that I have all my time for food preservation and can really work with my local farmers and growers and get the best of what they grew, support them in their work. And and I feel like everybody wins. You know, I remember going to my grandmother's house when I was a little kid, and she'd have me go down to the basement and get potatoes for dinner. They were stored in this this huge wooden bin. It seemed huge to me at the time, anyway, full of sawdust. And it was just a, a simple way to keep potatoes through the winter. Are there other ways to keep fresh food fresh, you know, for the long haul? Well, these days, that is a certainly a tried and true technique of sort of root cellaring things, you know, potatoes, carrots, apples. Winter squashes all do really well in sort of those cool, slightly moist environments. And then as you move into sort of modern storage methods, you know, there's nothing better than um, a home freezer for some things. What types of foods do you think freeze really well? I think that things like peaches, you know, sliced up maybe mixed in with a little bit of sugar to help prevent freezer burn is a good way to go. You can also do individually quick frozen peaches like you get at the grocery store where you cut them into quarters and lay them out on a cookie sheet and freeze them like that and then funnel them into a plastic bag. I love to freeze pesto because there's no other good way to preserve it, but it's such a delicious way to capture all of those herbs that happen in the garden at the end of the season. I've taken to making um, a plant-based pesto just to ensure that I have something that I could feed to anybody who comes my way. So I do it with um, nutritional yeast and sunflower seeds as opposed to the traditional cheese and pine nuts. And so then it's nut free and it's dairy free and, you know, anybody can eat it. Other things that I like to freeze, I will often freeze kale when that's in season. And the way I do that, best practice typically has you blanch your greens 
but I find that they keep for several months. If you just wash them, pull them off the stems, and then cram them into Ziploc bags and freeze those. And then what I do is I just pull out a handful of leaves when I want to make a pot of soup or something like that, chop them up, or even just crumble them over the pot because it kind of crumbles frozen. And then it's so easy. And it's a, you know, a almost work-free way of putting up that kale or those greens. Mm, okay. Well, I'm interested in that one. I have always just a bumper crop of kale every year. It comes up on its own. I don't even plant it anymore. <laughs> and I have made kale soup, kale fritters, kale chips, kale curry. I mean, I, I think I've <laughs> exhausted the ways to make kale, to be honest yeah. with you, but I haven't tried just freezing it. Something simple as that. It is game changing, actually, because, you know, it can be a lot of work to break down kale when it's fresh. But when it's frozen, it just kind of breaks down on its own. It really can just kind of crumple it up. And so it's easy to use. I use it in like scrambled egg skillets, soup, pasta sauces. It's great. All right. I'm going to give it a try. (laughs) Now, of course, apples are in season right now. Uh, What are your favorite things to do with apples to preserve them? There's nothing better than just plain old homemade applesauce. You can can it. You can freeze it. I also love to make apple butter. And I do that in the slow cooker where I'll just heap in apples that have been cored and peeled, add a little water, cook them down until they're soft, zap it with an immersion blender right in the slow cooker, and then continue to cook it down until all the water's cooked out. And then you can add some spices, lemon juice, a little sugar, maybe some maple syrup instead, and either can it or put it in the refrigerator and just eat it. It's delicious. That sounds great. I have to say we have a few apple trees here and they all produced just a ton of apples this year. So I actually bought a cider press. I can't believe. I know. I know. Right. If you had told me a few years ago that I'd be a person with a cider press, (laughs) I don't know that I would believe you. But here we are. But, uh, you know, I have to say it's been really fun. And also that's something, you know, you can put it in a jug and sort of forget about it for a few months and you come back and now you have hard cider, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Or leave it even longer and you'll have vinegar. Perfect. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And um, if you have a bottle of store-bought vinegar that has a little bit of that mother on it, you know, the the culture that forms that little scum on the surface, you can Mm -hmm. pluck that out and put it into your apple juice and it'll jumpstart the vinegar process and it'll be even faster and better. Oh, wow. Now, I've read that you can actually take the pulp that's left from making cider and use that to make apple cider vinegar. I haven't tried it yet, though. Huh. I guess you could do that. You could combine that with water and then, yeah, that would work. Definitely. Mm. You could also take that pulp and combine it with a little bit of sugar and cook it into sort of a paste. And then you'd have like an apple cheese, which is an old school fruit preservation method. Like, you know how you get quince paste? It would be an apple paste like that. Apple. Did you say cheese? Yeah, that's the name for those fruit preserves that are cooked to the point where it's like a sliceable paste. It's often called the fruit cheese. Oh, I had no idea. (laughs) No idea. All right. Okay. Well, you've given me a lot of ideas here. You know, where I live, we still um, haven't had a frost. So I'm actually harvesting loads of tomatoes yet. They're not looking so great, I have to say, the vines, but the tomatoes are still producing. What do you like to do with those this time of year? Tomatoes are my favorite thing to preserve this time of year, and they are the gift that just keeps giving. I love to sauce them, just, you know, pulp them, cook them down into sauce and can that with a little bit of lemon juice or citric acid. You know, that's, you can never go wrong. I also make pizza sauce this time of year, which is a really great one to have in the pantry. 
And I love to make tomato jam. That's another one that that's actually the most popular recipe I've ever published on my website. People have come back to me for years saying that that became their beloved family recipe too. And it's really just tomatoes and sugar and lime juice and a bunch of spices. And you cook it down and it turns into something that is like ketchup, but is better than any ketchup you've ever had. And it can go places that ketchup can't. And so that's a really good one for your tomatoes. And it's great because you don't have to peel them. Like that's the beauty of that recipe is that you want the skins in it because it gives it texture. What about uh, roasting tomatoes or, you know, even sun-dried tomatoes? That is also a great way to go. I love to roast tomatoes low and slow. So you cut them in half, put them in a really low oven for like 10 to 14 hours, and they kind of dry out. It becomes almost sun-roasted. And then it's just like this concentrated tomato-y nugget. And then you can either freeze them or you can puree them into sauces and, you know, proceed with canning them that way. But they are delicious. Mm -hmm. Could you even put it in a jar with olive oil and garlic, that sort of thing, and, and hold on to it until you need it? That is actually not a great technique because it can um, cultivate botulism. So botulism is the thing we're scared of when it comes to canning. And tomatoes are not actually as acidic as we think they are. And so if you need to have a high acid preserve, you need to often add acid to tomatoes to make them safe. And then if you add garlic, which is a low acid food to a tomato, and then you create an anaerobic environment with that olive oil, it can create something that's potentially deadly. So it's better if you're going to add garlic that you keep lots of oil out of it and then either freeze it or refrigerate it as opposed to canning it because um, you just want to be safe. No one wants botulism. Nobody. Nobody <laughs> wants it. No, indeed. Um, what about green tomatoes? Green tomatoes are fabulous. And I know everybody has them who gardens this time of year. I love to turn them into chutney. And chutney is such an easy preserve to make. There's no technique. There's no set point you're looking for. You chop up the tomatoes. You put them in a pot with sugar, vinegar, onion, maybe some raisins or other dried fruit and spices. And you just boil it down. You just keep cooking it until it's thick. Like that's that's it. And um, you can do it slower and it'll take like two or three hours. You can do it a little bit faster if you have to monitor it. And it'll take maybe 90 minutes. And then once it's thick, once it's not looking at all watery, it's done. And you can water bath can it as long as you're following a recipe that was created with that acid balance in mind. Or you can just put it in the refrigerator and eat it up. But it's great, particularly if you're planning ahead for the holidays, because it's great on a cheese board. It's great with the roasted turkey and roasted meats that we see a lot of times as we head into the holidays. It's also even great with latkes. So it's a really good one for this time of year. What about pickling produce? I know pickles aren't exclusive to cucumbers. What else do you like to pickle? Well, this time of year, I love to pickle the last zucchinis, they make a great pickle. Um, just you treat them like a cucumber, slice them up. And I like to make them as refrigerator pickles. I also love to do carrots this time of year, you know, just make carrot coins or carrot spears and do them in um, the same kind of dilled and garlic brine that I would do cucumbers in. Even the Brussels sprout is a really good candidate for pickling this time of year. And they are better, I find, if you do them fresh, because if you don't process them in a boiling water bath canner, because then they're crispy and you don't get that kind of signature cabbage, cooked cabbage stink that you would get. And so those are great. Cauliflower is another one. Cauliflower makes a really great pickle. I like to do it with a lot of lemon juice because that helps prevent the cauliflower from turning gray in the jar. And cauliflower can turn a little gray, but the lemon juice helps keep it nice and bright and white. 
Well, pretty soon, of course, Halloween will be here. Is there anything that we can do with those leftover jack-o'-lanterns when the holiday has passed? I know they're not the best pumpkin for cooking usually because they're so big and a little bit more watery. They're not as sweet as we usually like pumpkins to be. But what can we do with them besides just throw them in the compost? Well, if you've already carved it and it's been out for a few days, it might not be great to cook down. But if it's still in good shape or you've got a pumpkin you were just using for decor and it wasn't carved up, here's what I would do. I would take it and I would roast it. You can either roast it whole if it's still intact or if you've got a jack-o'-lantern where you carved it that night and it's just out for Halloween and then you bring it back in, you can cut it up into pieces and roast it. And then, um, you know, 300 or 350 degrees Fahrenheit, roast it just till it's tender. Then you scrape the flesh out of the skin. I also like to um, put those seeds aside and you can grab the seeds even if you've roasted the pumpkin and scoop them out, separate the seeds from the stringy mess. And then what I like to do with the seeds is boil them in some salted water, then drain them and then roast them. And by doing that, you get the salt, the salt infuses the seeds and um, just makes them more flavorful. Mm. But then once you've got the pumpkin flesh, you scrape it out of the skin. And what I like to do is puree it and then drain it. So because those big pumpkins for Halloween, those big jack-o'-lanterns can be very watery. And so you want to concentrate the flavor of the flesh. And so you've already kind of concentrated the sweetness by roasting it. And then you scrape it out and you puree it in a blender or use an immersion blender and kind of zap it and then put it in a fine sieve and let the water drain out. Um, And if you don't have a fine sieve, you can line a colander with cheesecloth or even just a clean thin kitchen towel and let the water drain out. And then what you have left is a very concentrated, hopefully fairly thick pumpkin puree that you can pack into containers and freeze and then use in like pumpkin bread. You could use it as sort of like a pumpkin souffle. I also like to take those containers. I tend to freeze it in two cup portions and stir it into risotto um, into Mm. the fall and winter. That's delicious because you've got that kind of creamy rice. You stir in the pumpkin. It makes it really rich. So that's great. You can also um, cook it down into pumpkin butter, which is delicious. I like to combine it with maple sugar and spices and a little bit of lemon juice and cook it down and cook it down. And then that's something that I keep in the fridge or I freeze. Pumpkin butter is too low in acid to be canned safely, but um, it's still delicious just to have on hand. Mm-hmm. And of course, pumpkin pie. And of course, pumpkin pies. I feel like that, you know, it's so obvious it goes without saying. <laughs> of course. Marissa McClellan is a cookbook author, food writer, and creator of Food in Jars. Marissa, thank you so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thanks, Bobby. Now I have some great ideas for what to do with all those pumpkins in front of my house. Yeah, me too. You know, I'm really not a fan of green tomatoes, but I may have to try that green tomato chutney. That sounds good. You cook. I'll taste. (laughs) Okay, as long as you clean up after. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Genevieve Santilli, Teresa Shee, Gabrielle Erton, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. Special thanks this week to Destination Wildlife. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I am Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.